I'm Rihanna Dillon and this is The Guru. Director is one of the biggest roles on any film or TV programme. The person hired to deliver a vision and get the best out of their cast and crew in order to bring the script to life. Working with actors and capturing performance is key. How does that change when your key performer is a silent sheep called Sean? Animation director, BAFTA and Oscar nominee Richard Starzak, one of the men behind the phenomena that is Shaun the Sheep, sat down with live-action TV director Richard Laxton, BAFTA nominated for his work on Him and Her and this year's Channel 4 hit, Mum, to talk about capturing performance, on-screen storytelling and being worried you might get caught out. Here is an extract of their chat, starting with the simple, what is your job? I think I have two descriptions of my job. One is the sort of very simple, creative interpretation of a script and then bringing it to the screen. And then the other one is the kind of real-life description, which is obsessive, compulsive, panic, uh, control freak, who has a grown-up box of toys and makes a living arranging them and then photographing them. That's very dark, of course, but that's the two versions how I describe it, I think. And also a lot of people, so they'll say to me about something I've done, uh, when they cast that person, what were they thinking? And I used to go, what do you mean they? And now I go, I know, yeah, they were terrible, weren't they? (laughs) (laughs) They didn't know what they were doing. So so I don't kind of, I don't tend to overtly talk about it. But if I do, I try and say, if I care about a story, I want to bring it to the screen. If I get a script I love, then I just want to tell that story and it's the process of that. They don't really understand or know which why should they and are quite surprised about what's involved in terms of everything how is it for you having met a number of directors recently kind of realize you're all in the same boat it's very hard to describe to somebody that hasn't actually directed what you actually do and uh, yeah I think animation is even more kind of obsessive because I think people get into animation because they want to control absolutely everything I heard Brad Bird who Pixar director saying that when he was making The Incredibles that the art director would come up to him and say, well, right, we've got a bowl of... Because everything has to be built from scratch in CGI. So they say, so we've got this bowl of sweets on the table. Like, what, what kind of sweets do you want in the bowl? What kind of bowl do you want? How, how, what sort of cellophane do you want in the sweets? How thick do you want the cellophane? What colour do you want the sweets? And he came quite late to realise that as much as he loved being able to control absolutely everything, there just wasn't any time for it. So he had to sort of pass that off to, to the art director, which I'm sure happens more readily in live action, but with animation, everything has to be built from scratch. My parents hardly understood what I do. I mean, my dad used to introduce me as a graphic designer to his friends. I always have a sort of slight fantasy when I'm on set and it's a difficult day of wishing I worked in animation. We did animation as part of my degree in graphics, which was when there was no 3D animation in the first year, so we just had to animate a 2D moving something. And mine just went, was a star, and it went round in circles and then fell off the screen. That's as far as I got. I know what you mean about... I think I've been taught... People introduce me as a producer who don't know that I'm a director... And I think as I've got older, I've just gone, hi, nice to meet you. Because it, it used to really bother me, but I, I suppose I've lost my desire to front foot what I do for a living. I think also people have an idea of a director and their personality. I don't know if that's the same in your world, even though what you direct is a different mm. genre, whether they think you're going to be some megalomania. I think probably when you get to making animated features, it's, mm. it has to be really collaborative, so you have to be very inclusive and get everyone on board. I think that's the same in live action as well. I mean, 
There is a way of not doing that. I don't think you get the best work. And I think like a conductor who has an orchestra, you know, we all make sure we get the great violins, the great timps, the great... And, and it's similar. But it's amazing how people love being directed because everyone's terrified of making a mistake. Mm. You know, the art department, the art directors, the DP. Yeah, yeah. But actually, there is... I mean, I'm slightly shameful to talk like this, although I shouldn't be, but actually there is something, isn't there, about having an idea and a vision and a story you want to tell in a particular way and being able to communicate that to people and crews like that, don't they? Because you know, whoever it is, in whatever department, they like that, that steer with which to then do their work. The hardest part for my job is maintaining a sense of confidence of doing it. That's the hardest thing, self-doubt, dealing with that. I'm only, um, I always feel like I'm a millimetre away from falling off my perch. And actually, it, and I, this is a cliche, but it's so true. Is this the job or I'm going to be discovered that I can't do it? Because I always feel <laughs> slightly syndrome. like, yes, I'm a fraud, basically, I Same think. Same yeah, yeah. In fact, a lot of directors feel like that. I know. I met, when we were promoting the film, I met quite a few of the other directors that have been nominated for awards and uh, they all had that sense of yes. somebody will find me out one day. It's quite strange. It's quite comforting talking to other directors, isn't it? Because yeah. we don't... I have never got involved, shamefully, in the Directors UK organisation, but I have met a lot of directors, as you have, through various situations. When we actually sit down and talk, there's really wonderful support and empathy that goes on because it is such a... It can be a very lonely job, I think. Yeah. Well, actually, following on from that, I think it's the same kind of idea, but I, I mainly do comedy and animation. So we make the film twice effectively, so we put an animatic together, and that's the template for the movie. And really, if I left at that point and just gave it to the studio floor, they'd probably do a pretty good job of making it. That's the point. You end up as a conductor, and you just uh, that's the sort of joy... Mm. joyful part because you know what film you're making and you just go ahead and, ahead and make it but the difficult bit I think particularly with comedy is you have a funny idea haha everyone laughs you put it in and you have to watch it about 300 times different edits different processes and then you lose faith in the fact that it's funny and you start to try to change things and you've, you have to keep reminding yourself no that was funny it's not funny now because you've seen it 500 times but it was funny so leave that in but it's it's easier said than done because you naturally want to improve on it and you think mm. you're improving on it, but sometimes my producer points out, no, that was fine as it was. That's another joke and it's equally as good, but it's, it's fine like that. So It's good, isn't it, having that person who can say that to you who you trust? Yeah. I mean, I've directed comedy as well and I find it so much harder. For me, it's much harder, more stressful directing comedy than it is directing a rape scene because generally there are degrees of which people would be affected by how moving, painful, traumatic that is, but mm -hmm. it would have an effect. Whereas for comedy, it either works or it doesn't. Mm. And, and has the actor done the optimum? Have they delivered their optimum performance? Can I push them a different way? Can I undermine the joke? Can they play it straight? And a lot of actors will, of course, I don't know if it's the same in a studio when you're doing your voice work, a lot of the actors will be motivated by the crew laughing. And I've always think if the crew are laughing, mm. it's not a test at all as to whether it's funny because they are doing a job, they want to be liked by the actor, they want to be supportive, they have a codependent emotional relationship with trying to make people laugh. And of course, when we all watch comedy, we sit in an armchair and go... Oh, that's funny. Yeah. We don't have any generosity of spirit at all. Sorry. And also, just going back to um, the rape analogy is not very nice or pleasant, but the reason I mention it is because I tend to have more 
it's important for me to make actors feel very comfortable and have a laugh during shooting. And often those scenes are... Of course, there's an intensity to them for performance, but actually around that, there has to be some levity in order yeah. to then fall back into the serious. Yeah. Whereas with comedy, you, know, you can't use the opposite and make everyone miserable and then expect them to be funny. <laughs> it's yeah. hard, isn't it? Yes, yeah. If you want to get comedy right, what we do, tend to do is we video ourselves, the animators, who are actually usually pretty good actors, I have to say. We act out the scene live action and we'll do it several times, some several takes. Not only that, we'll then go into edit and we'll really kind of fine-tune a good take, you know, add a frame here, take a frame out there, just to get the timing as, as, like, as, as funny as it can possibly be. But it's also it's interesting, we were saying, was there a particular sequence that you found that was an example of when it's really difficult? And you were saying that generally it's the whole... It's always, not it's always difficult, but it's yeah. one process that can hold difficulty. I've always been envious of the fact you can just change... You could, you could make... Sean's eyes sad. You could make Sean's eyes sad. Yeah. And I find it very difficult to go up to an actor and go, <laughs> obviously, yes. and wouldn't do that. Yes. So I like, I'm, I, I find it quite appealing that you could take a face and give it the expression you absolutely wanted. Yeah, I mean, they're relatively simple faces. I mean, it's nearly all, as you, as you know, it's, it's nearly all with the eyes. And oh. um, I always treat Sean like, uh, I always had a picture of Buster Keaton on the wall in the studio to remind the what we're, what we're right. aiming for. It's deadpan, he's not, he's not wacky, he doesn't kind of act in a crazy way. He's, he's, uh, he's, a, he's actually, you know, if you, you play it straight, I mean, that, yeah. that, that way you get best comedy. So, and we've got, we've got no dialogue as well, so the eyes are incredibly important. Well, uh, Comedy-wise, I agree, it's a bit general, you know, every day is a, is a challenge, but also the comedy that I tend to be more interested in is that that sits on the knife edge between delicacy, poignancy, emotional truth and funny. Yeah. And it's never kind of badum yeah. Well, The audience might disagree, but I, it's never intended to be badum kind yeah. of comedy. So I always think, when I've directed with a writer I work with a lot, it's always about the emotional truth of that story. So therefore, you, one hopes that if one gets that right, then there will be an authenticity to it and a humour to it, but it's not always laugh-out-loud funny. That's the other thing. Just in, in animation, particularly with what I'm working on at the moment with Sean the Sheep is, is um, it's quite hard to get the characters to emote or to, the emotional scenes the most difficult the comedy scenes are usually very physical so that's, yes. that's, that's manageable but one of the opening shots of the film we, we kind of got a close up of Sean's eyes where they fill a screen but their beads that big and we're trying to subtlety with the eye, eyelids trying to make him look uh, like he's waking up and looking slightly sad <laughs> And that scale is just... Uh, but I think it'd be quite difficult small. if you were doing that on a, that close on, a, on an actor to get yeah. that. Yeah. Because oh, yeah. I think it really would, because actually to read sadness off a face is so much a component... In storytelling, it's a component of many things, but even in life... Of course, you can tell an actor to feel an emotion, and, and many of their tools they use, their muscles in their face, their body, whatever, will start to depict it, whereas suppose you, you're asking the eyes to do that one thing, aren't you? I sort of found an acting shortcut, which I was really pleased about. There's a, you can find them on the internet, this, for the students out there. It's, uh, it's called Eye Accessing Cues, and it comes from... Um, I can't remember where it came from, but if you've got Eye Accessing Cues in the Google, there's a universal language in where our eyes go to what parts of our brain they're accessing, whether it's visual or conceptual, whether we're constructing something or remembering something. They're, your eyes have a position for all of those and um, our animators will have that eye accessing cues 
map on their wall when they're working to remind them of... Uh, and it wow. really helps, I think. The difficult part of my job is trying to make the characters look like they're thinking. Because humans always well, look like they're thinking, and puppets don't. And uh, to make them make it feel like they have an internal dialogue. Mm. Is, when, it, when that works, that's, that, that's very satisfying. I think, I think it's all about what making the audience feel what the character feels, don't you? And that if yeah. I make them... If I, if I can make an audience connect, which is my main thing, emotionally, yeah. then they will be with that character and they'll be a memorable performance. I think that's what we try to do, is, is, is create... And I think every, everyone probably does in... Uh, in movies is uh, you try to create empathy for the character. You want, you want the audience to like them for some mm. reason, even if they're a baddie or, a, you know, even if they're evil, you've got to like them in some way. And once you like them, you can then make them slip on a banana yes. skin and somehow that audience feel that and they can, they can release that with laughter. Yes. Yeah. But do you not also think that there are very, very few fundamentally bad people in the world? Most people have a very misguided sense of coping strategies they've learned as they've grown up, and behind them is something good. Mm. They may be shrouding it with their badness, but I think, I think what's interesting is always to try and see round the corner of a character, mm. round behind what a character's frontal, if you like, presentation is. You know, they are bad. And that most actors, I think, of all, I think nearly every actor I've spoken to about playing a a negative or bad character have said that they've always had to fall in love with them at some level and find their heart and their compassion. Because most of us are imperfect as human beings. And yeah. most, what we, I think the audience don't identify is, is when they're shown something which is unobtainable, mm. unless it's a fantasy film. But even then, fallibility to us all, which I think is why your films work so well, because they are haphazard, like being a human being. Yeah, you, you definitely want your... Uh, we've, we've given... We've decided on Sean's... Sean the Sheep's Floor, which is uh, is compulsive and uh, like if there's a button there that says do not press is the one that will press it and he'll suffer the consequences and then he has to get out of that. That's basically the main character trait we use in the series and the the films and that's got kind of infinite possibilities which is is good. But also sometimes you just wish he was a different personality and you could tell a completely different story because that kind of story tends to tends to lead you down the path of having he has to resolve a character flaw in himself you've got to pull the audience along with that and empathize with him there's something i've just written at the moment where the main character is sort of on the surface unlikable and it's actually quite it's quite easy comedy Mm. to be mean and i think one of the challenges is to find the humor in the heart and compassion and liking a character because we keep bludgeoning myself and my co-writer are bludgeoning this funny character but it ends up being one note actually mm. and as we've begun to give her a sort of uh, expose her thirds her, if you like her other side it's more interesting but then keeping that funny is a challenge because mm. then it can become a bit mawkish or sort of sentimental i suppose if you're making a movie of which you've made one of the same with the same character mm. is it that thing when I've done a second series of something which we've been very careful about the first it's always I really hope it's as good, as funny, as moving. Mm. And it's sort of like the second album syndrome, isn't it? Yeah. Do you have that Do you ever have that neurosis? I did have that neurosis because we're, we're planning to make a second Sean film at the moment mm. and trying to find... We, what we could, I don't know if you... Same terminology, but we, when, before we actually start, we just throw, throw out any idea at all. And it's, it's like we, we call it creating mud. We just thrown up lots mm. of mud that we, we can then sculpt but we've got to create the mud in the first place and know what to discard and stuff 
at that point, you know, I really did have the fear that we'd actually made a very good first film. And given Sean's character, it's going to be very hard to tell a film that wasn't similar or had similar traits in it. I was very nervous at first because I thought, I don't know if we're going to find a, a good story after making one film. And uh, luckily we did. And luckily it was um, a bigger sort of higher concept story. And then, then I got excited because it takes it to... It, it really feels like a step up, so I feel comfortable at the moment. <laughs> I suppose, for me, it's always a story of mining the human condition, for me, always. Whether it's through yeah. drama films I've made about Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor being co-addicts, or Tony Hancock being an addict, or the problem of being a woman and a gay woman growing up in the war, or if it's a 50-year-old woman in comedy who is suddenly alone and widowed and how does she fall in love at that age and how does she, in reality, grapple with her self-esteem, her confidence, her desire. And so always those stories have got behind them a kind of inquisition or, if you like, um, analysis and challenge about what we think, how we feel, and exploring that. And that's also the prism by which I will look at anything. Even, I've just done a an episode of an American TV show, The Mist, which is an adaptation or a kind of a TV franchise based on the movie, which is based on the Stephen King novella, which is essentially horror, suspense, thriller. Even in that, I was asking questions to the writer. How do people react when they're trapped? What's the reality of that? Not which is a genre, but what is the reality? Do people minimise? They're in denial? So that's always where I'll come at from a story. What about you? No, you hit the nail on the head for me because that's my favourite thing. I want to do comedy, but for the film to work on lots of levels, it has to work on an emotional level as well. It has to have an emotional story. I know it sounds ridiculous given that it's Shaun the Sheep, but we do take it incredibly seriously and try try and explore the, the human condition. You know, I love occasionally when I've sat with an audience that really enjoy the film. It's great to hear them laugh, but it's also great to hear them sniff and have a little cry, the, the emotional bits. No? That's the point I kind of go, yes, that's But isn't worked. that why we watch them, though? I mean, I don't... Yeah. My memory of Shaun of the Sheep isn't, is not... Yes, it's funny, but it's something incredibly touching about it. It's really moving. And, I, and, and of course, my ambition is always to make them laugh and cry, as I'm mm. sure you... And it sounds quite cruel, but if I hear an audience crying in a comedy... Yeah. I'm, I'm kind of, I think, well, I've just about managed to do my job and probably won't be fired and may get employed again-ish. <laughs> I, I remember doing a film where we had the first screening. It was called Grow Your Own, and it was a, a feature film. There's a little boy in it who's a Chinese family, a father and two children, and he'd escaped China in a container ship, and then they had this allotment, basically. Anyway, there's a scene where this little boy is having tea with one of the older chaps on the allotment, and there's something he says which was never comical to me. It was just a very touching little moment. First audience, 300 people in the cinema, Mm. everyone laughed. And myself and the producer kind of looked at each other and went... (laughs) The bits I thought were funny... There was a bit of that going on. Yeah. There was never a rumble of laughter. It was kind of it's, so you never so we think we know, but we're always surprised. My screening story is a test screening because we tend to have maybe two or three before the film's actually finished. So it's it's like sixty percent finished, and then the rest is drawings. We we get audiences in and give it a test. I went to one where I just I just wanted to get up and say, right, I'm stopping this. I'm stopping this. Because parents had brought their kids, and uh, there were a lot of parents there, and a lot of kids, 
But it just, I, I was looking around and I could just see the parents were like look at what, looking at their phones, they were talking to each other. It was like they'd taken their kids to it. It was a family film and I just wanted to say, this is for you, you know, you're supposed to be watching this. It was really painful. But the other one was in China where we went to a screening in a, I can't remember which city now because we went to that five cities in China, but they, they projected it off a laptop and the colours and the sound were completely all over. Something had gone wrong, they hadn't got proper copies, so they, were, they were playing it off a laptop. So the screening started with um, somebody's laptop with all their windows oh, and their God, personal yeah. Photos pictures and, and they clicked it and it came up yeah. and then they started playing it and the colours were com- completely out, the colour balance was all over the place, the sound was crackling away. I just wanted the grand to open up and swallow me. It was it was it was a horrible experience. Especially do, you get, when do, you get, do you get sort of anxious when that happens? Do you get sort of anxious raised heartbeat? Like I've been in those first yeah, screenings, yes. and I'm it's sort of it, there's to me. I think there's a there's a fear of humiliation somewhere underneath it all. Yeah. I remember being at a screening of a film I'd done was it premiered at the Frameline Festival in San Francisco, and the the Castro Cinema is 1800 people I think it's huge mm. and then they started playing the film and it had a lot of 80s music on it it was difficult mm. to sell internationally but they hadn't shown the festival version they showed the for sale version for TV so all the music was library music and I, and I, oh. I had to be taken out of the cinema by the festival director walked to his house <laughs> which was two streets away and just sat there kind of going <sighs> <laughs> oh. now people still enjoyed the film but it's mm. amazing how I don't know if this is the same for you. We, I own what I sort of wear what I do, and it becomes becomes part of me, I suppose, mm. and and therefore the stakes are very high. Globally, it mm. doesn't matter. Mm. I'm sure I won't be lying on my deathbed going that music was wrong at that screening. I mm. may I may be regretting that I never went to Kilimanjaro and or never had this experience. But anyway, at the time and with work, I'm, how does it feel for you? Does it affect you to the core? Yeah, it, it, it's strange. That if anyone with Nick Park, who, who created Wallace and Gromit, I once drew quite a cruel cartoon. I mean, this, I'm t- talking about 20 years ago. Drew quite a cruel cartoon of Wallace and Gromit and, and pinned it on the wall. And I could see Nick just didn't like it. And I, it's got a sense of humour, and I thought, well, that's, that's quite odd. But I've found that now since I've made so many episodes of Sean and made the film. It's very personal. If anyone takes the mick or rude about the cat, or, 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 or again, just do a kind of slightly perverse drawing of Sean, it really gets to me. Because it's, it's like family. It, it, feel, yes, it feels sure. like, it becomes like part of you. They feel very real. There's a fine line, isn't there, between somebody being keen and interested and passionate about wanting to get involved mm. and then being too keen, too interested and too passionate about being involved. I, yeah. think, I, think, I, think it's, I think it's a really difficult balance to hit because I, I think you have to be present and there and turn up and know what you're there to do and learn. And I'll give people so much time if we have it course but sometimes if someone's over keen it can be a bit in your face and then you're it doesn't happen that often occasionally people overstep the mark and give you an opinion in which mm. case and I was brought up in the industry I don't know how you were where you didn't really come you would never comment on what was going on with the director because it's a delicate process of which mm. I didn't understand or mm. neither should I understand what his process was so it's about kind of understanding, really, I suppose, the dynamic for me. Yeah. It's quite a special kind of person, really. It's, you've got to have a lot of empathy. You've got to, have, you've got to sort of understand 
everything from everyone else's position, stay out of the way and do your job. And I think, I think people think they won't get noticed if they do that. But I think that I always notice when somebody's doing their job really well yes. and they're not bothering me. They might come and ask me a question later in the day about something, I'm happy to talk to them, but they've got to know when and where that is. I mean, we actually, we had one intern, I have to say, that was so keen. They were working in um, production. We were getting a lot of letters, other interns wanting work. She took it upon herself to answer them all, but without anyone knowing. So these letters would come in. She'd come in early in the morning and, for some reason, booked all these people in for internships six months, nine months hence. So when she left, people started just to turn up, hi, I'm here for my internship. And we go, we had no idea. what, And we kind of pieced it together and realised that she'd just... Uh, took it upon herself to offer all these people... Oh, I, thought you were gonna, I thought you were going to say that she then wrote to everyone and said, we're not interested in having you, so that she was the only intern who... Was she, she also did that. She, the film came in, and again, we, nobody in the company knew about it. A film came in, somebody wanted their opinion on the work they'd done, and uh, they were like 13-year-old kids that made this film. And she wrote this awful critique about it. We found that later, subsequently, and uh, really upset them. And their parents had contacted Ardman to say, what the hell are you talking to my daughters like this for? You know, they've, they've, they just want encouragement, you know, for the film they'd made. Uh, luckily, she never showed her face again. It's hard, isn't it? I mean, yeah. I, I always think... I'm always impressed when someone's doing what they do well, whether they're yeah. a runner, whatever they're doing, and it's just about being in tune with a machine. Yeah. And then slowly you can find out, can't you, what oh, you're interested in doing that fundamentally, yeah. or where would you like to end up? But understanding that if they're there, they're there as part of a team. When I did a degree, there was only three places in the country where you could do film, TV, and, you know, media, and it was in Bournemouth. And when I was there in my holidays, I wrote to the BBC and said, I want to get a job. Mm. And I worked in radio drama in the play library, so every play that was sent in, even if it was never going to be made, it had to be logged mm. and filed. So it was a very dull clerical job. And then I got a job in TV the next summer, and then my first job, and I was terrified. It was as a runner on a period drama for BBC. Mm. I didn't know what I was doing, and I, I still to this day think I owe a few people on that production an apology letter about how much... I must have been... I mean, they were very generous and carried me through this three months, but I didn't know what I was doing. Yeah. I remember queuing at the lunch queue with the caterers with my wallet, trying to look where the till was, and I kind of didn't know what to say. You know, why do I pay for this? When they said, well, you're going to be staying in a hotel, I was like, who do I have to share the room with? <laughs> <laughs> All right, OK. Anyway, what was yours? What were your... Oh, mine was a lot simpler because um, I did a fine art degree, actually. While I was doing my degree, I discovered a... One of the few bits of audiovisual equipment that worked in the building, which was a, which was a film camera with a stop frame facility. So, I'd always want to try animation. Basically, I never thought I was good enough to do it. Basically, imposter syndrome. I thought I can't do that. That's really clever. But I started to experiment with pixelation, animation, animating strange things like food, and really loved that process because I suppose it's the control thing. You complete control of what you're doing, what you see. Cut long story short, I, I went to visit Ardman, who at the time were just a two-man company. It was Peter Lord and Dave Sproxton. Nick Park was still at National Film School. I never thought it would be a career. I just thought, oh, this, this would be fun for a bit if I could do something like this for, for a while. Anyway, I was, I was trying to make my own short film in a friend's uh, photography studio, and um, Peter Lord and Dave Sproxton came to see what I was doing and then offered me some work on the back of that, which was great. I thought, great, I'll going to do this for a while. It just so happened, and I'm sure this is part of the imposter syndrome that's true, is that 
I was in the right place at the right time because when I joined Ardman, Channel 4 had just started and uh, the head of Channel 4, Jeremy Isaacs, actually came to the studio and said, I've seen the films you've done. Here's a sack of money. Make, make me five. That was basically it. He just... We didn't actually have a sack of money. That's the animation it. of it, isn't it? Yeah, that's, that's right. the animation of the scene. <laughs> but he just said, uh, I want you to make five films. Bye. And um, it, was, it was like, hooray, you know, we're in the money. But it wasn't a lot of money. It was, but we had the money to make uh, five short films. So I was there just at the right time. You probably had talent, though, because otherwise they could have got rid of you. Yes, there are very few people around. <laughs> but you have talent. I, you have talent. But uh, from that point, as soon as we'd made those films, and again, it's been the right place at the right time, is that once they're broadcast, the commercials start to flow in like crazy. I remember we had a fax machine that was almost continuously running with agencies sending us scripts, and that really launched the money from commercials, really launched the company. It was then mm. that Pete and Dave said, right, we can get a bigger studio, we can buy the equipment, we can start making proper films. And, uh, so it funded, in a way that a voiceover funds an actor's work at the theatre, it funded yeah, Ardman to make the things they really wanted to make. Yeah, mm. yeah, we did. And they're great projects as well, like the Sledgehammer for Peter Gabriel, which was um, yeah. sort of pr- pretty groundbreaking at the time. And the commercials we did were, at that time, were quite groundbreaking as well. So it felt like, for me... Everything had happened at the right time. Had I, had I arrived two years later, I might not have got a job. So, you know, I was, was there at the right time. You've really got a series of sort of belief systems, haven't you, about when you arrived and your imposter syndrome, they support that really well, don't they? <laughs> yes. If it had been two years later, they'd never employed me. Yeah. yeah. yeah it's true. true. It's weird, isn't it? I still think with my first film, first short film that I wrote and directed, that I only got to London Film Festival because somebody dropped out and that they were, they were somehow being generous to the actors who were in it. I never, to this day, you know, people say, now can I see a short film? And I mean, yeah. absolutely not. Yeah. Right. It's not terrible, but I still feel ashamed that they're going to go, yeah, you are crap, you see. Mm. You shouldn't be doing it now. Can you imagine doing anything else? I don't mean in that, I mean completely different. Can you imagine stopping doing it? Not now, no. I'm a, I'm a, I've, on my uh, Twitter page, it said I should have been a tinker because um, I do uh, hoard, I buy junk and then do things with it and give it up, give it away. So I love tinkering with stuff. I love the physicality of, like, repairing a chair or, you know, upholstery or I re-skinned a banjo the other day. I can't, I can't help but find something I think, I can right. sort that out. So that's in your so bones, isn't that's it? That's in my bones, yeah. I have escape fantasies all the time about doing anything else. I mean, I think the last the shoot I was on last week, I, was, I walked up to the makeup department and said, that is what I'd rather be doing than my job. And it's entirely to do with running away. I don't really want to be a makeup artist, but it seemed like a more contained option. I didn't feel like I was carrying this thing around. I don't think... I mean, I'm utterly... I'm unqualified to do anything else. Right. I have no idea what I would do other than write a bad novel. <laughs> tell you what I'd love, love to do, and uh, that's really jealous of this role in the film industry, is Foley artist, because uh, that's something that... I always want to get involved in, and I love Foley as well. Yeah, I love it, but it—I always think it's quite sad because they're always behind a fake door, always on fake snow in a basement in a soundproof <laughs> room. So yeah, it's the invention, though. I suppose uh, animation yeah. allows you a bit more leeway into sort of invention in, in terms of the sounds you get. Yes, and it's key, isn't it? Because the soundscape yeah. is built from zero. Yes, isn't it? absolutely. 
Well, certainly the mechanics of what we do is different, mm. isn't it? Uh, and and, and the, the process. But, it, but having a, talking to you, I think I feel certainly that we have a similar set of aspirations and desires and ideas about what it is we want to say or how to say it, I think. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really struggling to think of any differences, really. I think, like I said earlier, I think animation tends to attract people that may be more insular and more the kind of people that would be constructing their own little worlds in their bedrooms where all their friends are outdoors playing football yeah. or climbing trees. It sounds very old now, doesn't it? <laughs> Kids don't do that anymore, I know, but everyone sits in their bedroom staring at a screen. I think it attracts people that are kind of uncomfortable, socially quite awkward and uncomfortable. There's a, I think there's a lot of people quite high on the spectrum in animation because it's a very... Uh, it takes an awful lot of concentration, singular concentration mm. if you're animating, to get something done. I think the difference, the only difference I can spot really is in, in, the, in the performing, the acting, is that as an animator, you're performing in slow motion, so you've, you've rehearsed and you understand your motivations, you know what's going on in the character's head and you're performing it. But then you're also being technical because you're, you're on the set more or less on your own once you're set up to go and you're animating, you're becoming aware of is that shadow going to hit my face if I walk past that part of the set or should mm. I move that or oh, I've got to take another frame there or I, I could try another... You know, you're, you're technically, you're, your brain's working technically as well as emotionally at the same time, I think it's quite exhausting for the animators. I sometimes take the good ones for granted and kind of put them under a lot of pressure and they, then they tend to crack and explode and say they don't want to do it anymore and they're going home. Uh, you sound like some actors. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, we, put, we, put, we put our good actors under a lot of pressure. I mean, yeah. Leslie Manville, who plays the lead in Mum, the title role, she's in every scene of series one bar, I think, three. Right. She's on from 8 a.m. till 7 p.m., five days a week. You know, if we overrun, she's still, you know, she's in makeup before that. And one has to put her... Now, she loves her job and she's got a huge amount of experience, but you, one does tend to push actors through their paces. Now, it's mm. partly what they love because it keeps mm. them real and fresh. Mm. But it is quite brutal, I think, at times. I think also I think there is a sense of being more extrovert in live action. Mm. I mean I, I mean I'm a bit kind of jazz hands because I think instead of staying in my bedroom when everyone was playing football, I sort of was putting on a play or mm. working at how to do a musical. I hope this isn't being watched by many people, having just confessed <laughs> to that part of my life. Anyway, that's who I am. Still am. No. Um, but you know, so 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 there is an extrovert nature of it because we're in a team of 50, 60, 80 crew mm. and I like that family feeling of making it I, there's a great comfort in that for me when we're out on location or even in a studio but do you think because it's still for me at times very easy to become feel very isolated sometimes it's like it's a, it can be an incredibly social job but it will also be an incredibly isolated position to be in yeah particularly when the shit hits the fan I think it's a bit kind of <sighs> we feel a bit but do you still get that yeah it's, but isn't that a lot of that, the pain of keeping the bad bits away from... If you're, say, you're briefing the, you're being your actors or rehearsing with them, uh, as I brief and rehearse with the animators, something awful might be happening somewhere else, you know, in the production. Mm. And you really want to go and sort that out, but you've also got to put that to one side for that moment. Yes, but I actually have, you just uh, yeah. want to scream and go, for fuck's sake. Collaborating with a crew as a director is great because if you can communicate your ideas and you respect the people you're working with and they're good, it's wonderful because, I mean, my ideas are here and everybody else's 
mm. you know, are going to top those ideas. And that's the idea, isn't it? Is to keep them yeah. inspired. So in their particular, <coughs> everyone's bringing their A game to it. Collaborating with people, whether it's a writer, I think Stefan and I, Stefan Golshevsky, who writes him and her and has written Mum, we work together a lot. There is a mutual, I, th- I think you'd say this, <laughs> I'm sure he says, there's a mutual exchange of trust in how I can bring his writing to an actor on a frame in a mm. set and, and an understanding the sort of pinprick detail of his writing, even though it sounds everyday words, it's very, very well con- specifically constructed mm. to make a more epic, emotional story happen mm. within an ordinary world. I love that collaboration. I'm collaborating on something else. We're co-writing. That's challenging because, of course, when you're co-writing, you're not taking their job and making it into yours. You're both sharing the job. And that is, at times, hilarious, exciting and challenging, I think, for both of us in that project. What about you? How's... It's a, it's a very broad term, collaboration. I mean, I suppose the, just spot another difference is that over the years, the crews, we tend to work with the same people. And that it evolves, you know, some people leave and new people join, but you usually end up with the best team of people at that particular moment that's available and you've worked with, uh, yeah. they, they've worked with them several times over the years, you know, taking back 20 or 30 years, so you know you've got the best people for the, for the job. So there's a comfort in that and there's a comfort in the, because you know them so well, that the collaboration is easier, they feel more comfortable to suggest things and they know what not to suggest. Well, they know your taste, would you say? Or was it that they know the appropriateness of their suggestions given... Well, probably both, were... really, mm. just, just because they've worked with the same group of people for a long time. You know, animators tend to move around globally, you know, like sheep shearers. They tend to sort of work on productions where they are. You know, right. they'll, they'll come from right. us and they'll go to Leica in uh, Portland... Uh, back to us maybe there's a film in Switzerland maybe there's a film right. out in Wales but we always look out for when these productions are happening so we don't clash too much because we it's a we basically really a small, luxury of that actually small band of people we, I tend because I tend to I'll tend to appoint the right director of photography for the tone of the piece that mm. I want not assuming every director of photography is mm. right to do you know action or a lot yeah. of CGI someone else emotional stuff Andrew Dunn who lit a film that I directed is, is literally will cry with an actor when he's operating and lighting the scene. And film I did with Dakota Fanning, this, I remember this, this scene in Venice, and he was literally emoting. Now, he's a perfect DP to have that kind of relationship with. He may not be so right for something else, so I, was, I don't keep the same people around me the whole time, and also because of availability and all mm. that. So I'm quite envious of that trust, mm. circle of trust that you can keep yeah. held. And also, we've got a kind of uh, brains trust, which we've kind of modelled on Pixar, really, which is uh, the senior people at Aardman, which are Pete Lord and Dave Sproxton, Nick Park, one or two others, Steve Box and myself, my producer. There's, there's a small group of people where we feel that safety when we're developing an idea to say this is what we want to do and feel perfectly obliged to tell them it's, it's absolute rubbish if we, if we want to. Yes. And it, that, it's great to have that safe space. Yeah with people you trust. But don't you think any creativity is about the ability to fall flat on your face? When I'm co-writing, I will say, we can say anything, and we'll write it down, as you mm. said. You know, we'll have, I think you said, your mud 
pick mm. up, we'll have a, a, we'll write anything down that might work and know that it could be ludicrous. And the same with me with actors. If mm. I create an environment on a set where they can make a really out there choice, something magical can happen. And that is the trust game mm. that we're all in, isn't it? Suggest it, then we'll decide. I, I never want to be a person who ends up screwing down people's creativity or their mm. ideas so yeah. they don't then have an idea they're, pre- they're not prepared or frightened of bringing to the table. Yeah. The inventive side, this is, again, slight differences. The, the kind of invention for us happens earlier on because we haven't got time. We just literally cannot afford to improvise on set. That has to be done in the animatic stage yeah. where we try different ideas out. and we, you know, we can generate hundreds of thousands of drawings and, and reject them all and start again. So that part of the process for us happens before, once we get to the studio floor, it has to be a kind of regimented process yeah. to, 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 to get it made. I mean, there is some leeway. Like, for instance, in the film, the Sean movie, it's, it was only two months from the end we completely scrapped the ending and uh, rewrote it. And um, the last five or ten minutes are completely new and... It took everyone a bit by surprise. You know, I want a, I want a quarry. I want a quarry with like fifteen foot high walls. And isn't it amazing though that you can do that? Yeah. yeah and sometimes those, it's not. It, sometimes you never know when those blasts of inspiration are going to happen. Mm. I've done that with recutting things where you suddenly go, hold on a minute, turn it on its head just mm. before you have a screening with your exec producers, mm. and it suddenly it sort of just zings or it, it lands in itself somewhere. Brilliant.